You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. And if you've been listening to the show for a while and wondering whether this jumped up interviewer guy is actually any good as a comedian, you can find out by coming to see my solo show, An Hour, live on tour. Listen up later in the show. Uh, I'll give you loads of details where you can get tickets and ways that you can help me publicise it if you are a good person deep down and truly believe in your heart of hearts that I must know something about comedy, otherwise how could I ask such fascinating questions? That's enough self-promo for now, with the for now heavily underlined. Uh, Now it's time to uh, listen to an episode which was recorded only moments ago, hours ago, uh, this week. Uh, This is the first in this run of live Soho Theatre ComCom pods, Uh, and my guest, of course, is the absolutely brilliant Izzy Sutty. Hello. Thank you. That was some kind of introduction. Um, And thank you as well. And this is something I've never said at the beginning uh, of a show before, certainly not a live record. Thank you for convincing me that I had time to go for a final wee before we started. Yeah, and it was less than a minute to go. And he was like, oh, I can't go for a wee. And I was like, you totally can't. Who needs more than a minute to wee? Well, I, d- I worried that I wouldn't be able to get... This is not how it normally starts. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was worried that I wouldn't be able to... It was like one of those emergency squeeze a kidney situations. Oh, yeah. But I, the reason I'm raising that is because it's so nice to see you and hang out with you. I haven't seen you for like socially for a couple of years. I've not really seen you on the circuit because you've not been on the circuit. No. Tell me what you've been up to for the last couple of years. Um, I had a baby in October last year and I was doing a play... Uh, when I was first pregnant, so then I just didn't really gig. So you, you were doing a play, though. How pregnant were you when you were doing the play? It was when I was first pregnant, so I couldn't tell anyone. And um, it was a play about the A to Z, and I was playing the woman who wrote the A to Z. Um, it, was a, it was a new musical, and um, it, it was, it was quite, I didn't leave the stage for two and a half hours, but I couldn't tell anyone I was pregnant, so I was sort of constantly drinking ginger tea in the corner, kind of... <laughs> Thinking, oh my God. Yeah, and then I couldn't get hammered, you know, which is something that I would normally do um, a lot, uh, especially, you know, doing a new play where sort of everything was coming together at the last minute and everyone was like, let's get fucked. And then I was like, if I just stick to my ginger tea, thank you, you know. And presumably people guessed. Did anyone guess? No, I don't think anyone did guess. No, hmm. no. It was All at the right. very beginning. 
Yeah. Okay. So you so you've not been on the circuit on the stand up circuit. I, I suppose a lot of people in the audience or listening to this at home uh, will know you as Dobby from Peep Show. That's probably your. The, do you think that's what you're best known for? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for those of you who are only familiar with Izzy as Dobby, and we'll get on to Dobby in a bit, uh, so to speak, um, uh, you are, are you started as a stand-up? I suppose I start, when I was growing up, I always wanted to be um, an actress and a writer of some sort, but I didn't know necessarily that it'd be comedy. Um, and I started writing songs at quite a young age. When I got a guitar, <clears throat> I wanted to play the saxophone, and then my mum said you'll have to play the clarinet first. And I couldn't be asked to learn the clarinet. So that is, like, that oh, is a really shrewd parental move. Yeah, I know, I know. So I, I, I said, I want to play the guitar. So she, she should have said, oh, you'll have to learn the recorder first or something. But she said, oh, okay, you can go straight to the guitar. So I started playing that and writing love songs for boys, which failed abysmally um, from about the age of 12. I used to get commissioned to write. Yeah, I remember hearing you talk about this yeah. in one of your shows. So that's actually true. That's true. I used to get I used to get girls at school to tell me a few facts about a boy they fancied. And it was easier if he went to our school because um, I would know him so I could write the song more easily. But often there were quite a few schools in our area and and there were a couple of guys who were from another school. So I just had to rely on like what they said about him, that you know he had blue eyes and blonde hair or whatever. I only need a few basic facts. And then I'd write the song on behalf of the girl and then they'd pay me and like... I got so many different things. I actually got... Um, the best thing was I got a bird's nest woven by hand... Um, by someone's grandfather that was my payment for one but um we I used to then teach the song to the girl and we used to record it onto cassette tape and then give it to the guy um although I performed one live um in my first band Izzy Sotty and the Muppets um <laughs> but that didn't work and that that was the only song I ever wrote from my point of view so okay. the guy was in the audience and it's weird I don't know I, I just thought that I think my idea was that it would be such a grand gesture and so thought through that it couldn't possibly fail. Like, you know, when you think if I work hard enough at something, it will succeed. That was my... Yeah. Even though the songs only ever contained the chords D, G and A. I mean, it wasn't like I actually did work hard on them, but I thought, this this is a really good song. It's going to look like it took ages, so surely they were Mario's. But yeah. So you're, were you, have you ever heard of anyone else doing anything remotely similar? No, I guess I was basing it on, like, I think in at that point, things like Love is All Around by Wet, Wet, Wet and things, and Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams, which we used to put on as a B-side to the cassette tapes. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> we used to use a C60 tape. Okay. And um, I... I used to feel like, oh God, you know, we've it's the song is only two minutes long and we're having to give them a whole C60 tape. So I might as well put another song on or do a cover. So I used to do that one. And I think I genuinely thought like, the, these are people who make a living from music and they're writing songs about love. Therefore, that's what people do. And yes. so although I guess I didn't know anyone who was doing similar things, i.e. writing tailor-made songs for someone, I thought, oh, well, do people tend to write about love? Yes, I, I suppose what, the reason I ask is because I'm trying to get a sense of you as a 12-year-old girl doing it. Yeah. Would you say 12? Right yeah, then? 12 or 13. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And because that's such an unusual uh, uh, kind of uh, strategy for a child effectively to go okay i'm gonna make like i remember making money in the playground by learning how to fold those paper water bombs and selling them and for a brief afternoon i made some sweet cheddar (laughs) but uh 
But there was nothing like as as creative as that. And you must have had, as a child, as a little girl, you must have had a real sense of self-belief. Do you yeah, think that's true? I, um, I think it was... I think that probably um, behind it all was a desire to perform. Um, and I think that that seemed the best way, perhaps, to do it, rather than maybe it was like if I write songs for other people, I won't be as vulnerable as if I just wrote songs okay. myself. And yes, maybe because you're doing love songs by, by proxy, really. Yeah. And also, I guess you're saying these songs potentially have a function, although, you know, they never worked. They did, they were written, like, I guess if you write a song for an advert, you're hoping that the song perhaps won't be scrutinised as much as if you went, this is the best song I've ever written, I'm going to perform it like Ed Sheeran would just on a stage. Yeah, okay. It's like an incredible... That's actually what you stumbled upon, is a really useful primer to teach yourself how to write songs. Because you've set up the parameters such that you don't need to succeed, you're not personally invested. And presumably, I mean, I would imagine as a creative technique, that takes pressure off you that then lets you do it quite well actually yes and i think it's really important to have parameters i think the worst thing that can happen is if um you think i'm going to write something be it a bit of stand-up or a script or anything a song and you think oh it can be about anything in the whole world it can be quite crippling having that much choice whereas i think if someone goes can you write a song about the weather it's like okay yeah right i've got you know i think it's immediately much easier to do so i guess i was giving myself parameters um yeah so is that, that that first public performance of one of those songs? Tell us about that. How were you feeling before that? Well, I was really hammered. Um, <laughs> we did um, Izzy Sutty and the Muppets only did one gig. I was in quite a lot of bands at school. I was in a prog rock band at 15 or 16 called Infinite Drift. Um, oh, which, <laughs> do you have any Infinite Drift music? Absolutely. I've got it all on my computer. Incredible. Yeah, okay. yeah. If you Can want you to put t- it on... I yeah. would love to. I'll put an Infinite Drift song <laughs> yeah, on the brilliant. end of this episode. Awesome. <laughs> Um, the best one's called The Clock, um, which I wrote about a clock. Um, <laughs> and it's lyrics like, you travel at a speed that no one can imitate. You tell people if they're early or if they're late. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, I, so that was that was when I was a bit... That was in my prog rock phase, which was yet to come, um, when I was in Izzy, Izzy Sutty and the Muppets. Um, Izzy Sutty and the Muppets was formed with some guys that I used to jam with every Saturday, um, okay. one of my guitar teachers and some other people. And we we spent a summer, um, there were two brothers and their parents taught in Singapore. And um, I, uh, the older brother was about 18, my teacher, or 19, and the younger brother was about, say, 15 or 16. And for a summer, they were alone in the house. Their parents were away. So I and a lot of other people ended up staying there. And by a week in, we were all eating one meal a day, which was a fry up every day um, with like loads of black pudding and white pudding, which I hadn't known had existed since then. I think it only just arrived in Matlock. Um, but um, in a massive pile about, I don't know, if you imagine a pint glass and a half, I, I remember this fry up each being that high. <laughs> and we used to have that at about four o'clock in the afternoon, loads of booze. And we used to jam every day for ages and write songs. And Izzy Sutty and the Muppets kind of came out of that. And our one gig was at Star Came to Village Hall. And I hadn't intended to do the song, the love song, because we'd written other other songs as a group. But I stole a bottle of um, sparkling wine from my parents. We used to have a cupboard that was called the shower cupboard because when we moved in, there was a shower in there. But then it was removed and the cupboard contained booze, but we still called it the shower cupboard. Um, 
I went to the shower cupboard and stole a bottle of um, sparkling wine. And I I had, I think, all of it before I'd gone on. I was probably by this point 13. Um, and I remember looking down and seeing that I had, my left hand wasn't on the guitar at all. I was so drunk, I wasn't playing any chords. I was just playing open <laughs> strings <laughs> for the whole gig. But um, the guys I was in the band with were fantastic musicians and um, sort of covered covered for it um, we had a bassist and another guitarist as well as a drummer so uh, and a trombonist weirdly um and then i went behind uh, stockings village hall and threw up into a, a spider's web and went around for the rest of the night with a spider's web draped around my head sort of, um, i mean i can't be the only person here thinking this cannot be true in <laughs> in this amount of whimsical detail no, you true. then you threw up into a spider's web yeah. okay well it was into a bush but i didn't it, I didn't sort of head towards a spider's web hanging from a lamppost with raindrops in it and go, I'm going to throw up into this. It was in a bush that contained a spider's okay, web. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, but again, if the band were called Izzy Sutty and the Muppets, again, that's quite an unusual thing for a young person to do, is yeah. name a band themselves and the so-and-sos. Yes, I don't think that... I don't know if I thought of the name. I think I always really, really wanted to perform and write stuff. But I think at the last moment, I'd sort of go, oh, oh, I don't know if I can do it. And then that's when often other people stepped in and went, look, let's call it this. And I'd be like, really? Okay. I was never one of those people who was like, I'm going to be in a band. It's going to be called Izzy Sutton the Muppets. We're going to be brilliant. I, I was kind of always with my shoulders hunched and my head down, you know, getting really hammered because I was so nervous. But I did still have this inner real real drive to write and perform almost despite myself in a way and what what do you think you were looking for in that drive i was listening to your um uh, one of your radio shows the uh, guide to the family uh, recently um and one of the the elements of that which i thought was so charming and and interesting to listen to is you revisiting places in matlock where things happened during your childhood with some of the adults now who were the children that you were hanging out with at the time and i remember the story in particular about you being known for years as the girl who jumped off matlock bridge for a pound now that's a story yeah. that people can find on the on the radio show but there is, again i'm just trying to build a picture of you as a younger person being up for being the centre of attention. In a, in, and there's a dynamic there. If you're saying, like, you're in, you put yourself in a position where you're the centre of attention, but you're cripplingly nervous and you're hiding, and you're sort of there and not wanting to be there and wanting to be there. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's sort of quite a complex thing growing up, isn't it? And I was in a small town um, with, I thought, not much to do, as, as, everyone, I th- as everyone thinks, I think, when they grow up in a small town. It's sort of like, oh, we haven't got a cinema. Chesterfield have got a cinema and stuff like that. But actually, and now when I go back, I'm like, how did I ever overlook the fact that this is so such a beautiful area with caves yeah. and rivers and all that? I just didn't appreciate it. Um, but I think I used to write this really terrible but incredibly heartfelt poetry, in inverted commas. I can't believe I've just done the sign for poetry, but I have, uh, with my two fingers. Um, but it was so long like i used to get stoned and write this poetry and it would be like nothing is real you know the children of depression and um stuff like the wolf howls but everyone stands still like stuff that really doesn't mean anything but at the time was like i used to go and sit in these caves and write this stuff like on a four pieces of paper did chesterfield have caves i think not <laughs> exactly <laughs> um yeah i i i i, I I sort of wanted to like break out of 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 Matlock. I I didn't 
I wanted to go to London and I wanted to, I sort of really wanted to devour life at a pace. Um, and I really, really wanted to go to stage school. And I'm so glad that my mum kept saying no and sent me to a normal comprehensive because I think it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have enjoyed it. Um, but uh, I really, we were saying, can't we move to America? Can't we move to London? Um, she always used to say, no, you know, you've got to stay here and you can go when you're 18. And um, I think, I just really wanted something. I wanted to be as as rich as I could possibly be, and for to, to be as vibrant as I could possibly be, and kind of to push myself. Do you mean rich financially? No, I mean no, yeah. no. I mean rich, um, sort of. I guess, oh God, spiritually. Um, that probably sounds um, a bit pretentious, but I. I think that I wanted to sort of um, make sure that on my deathbed I didn't look back and go, I wish I'd done that. Yeah, okay. Okay, so what's the what's the link then between um, when you first did that live performance and and when you then did your first stand-up gig? Well, when I, fir- it, when I did that first live performance and putting aside the fact that I was performing the song about the guy um I was performing songs that I'd written which I found incredibly nerve-wracking um and I found doing the covers much easier um my first stand-up gig was it, it was a really different experience because um when I was at drama school so I, I'd always been writing songs I carried on writing songs I stopped writing songs about boys I realized they didn't work but maybe underneath thought okay, I'm not going to write songs about boys anymore. I mean, on the surface of it, they didn't work. But I think perhaps I always knew they wouldn't. I think it was just a way of me starting to write songs. You okay. know? Um, and and, then when, I and which, to, which drama school did you go to? I went to Guildford School of Acting. Okay. So I was still writing lots of songs throughout my teenage years. And then some of them were very pathetic and kind of sick for me. And some of them were a bit like my poetry, but put to music, if you can imagine such a thing. Um, and then... I did, when I was at college at drama school, I'd written a song about the perfect guy that was kind of, uh, and I, again, I didn't really intend it to be funny. I guess I thought, intended it to be light-hearted. It was stuff that now I would consider quite hack, but at the time I didn't. Um, like, you know, he doesn't like Star Wars and stuff like that. So it was kind of like all the things that perhaps kind of stereotypical guys do like, and I was thinking, saying the perfect guy wouldn't do all this. Um, and I was living with, I was in my second year and I was living with three uh, foreign people. I was living with a French guy, a Hungarian and a Slovenian girl. Um, and the French guy, I performed it to them the night before and we all used to smoke. We used to smoke like, I used to sleep in the living room because we were in a three bedroom house. And when I went to bed every night, people had smoked like probably 60 or 70 fags in that room every night. So when we were all sitting around caning fags and I um, played them this song and Laurent who was the French guy said you need it needs like another layer to it I think you should do it in a different accent or something it's just not quite alive enough because it was going into a songwriting competition the next night and the other songs were very musical theatre songs because Guildford's quite a musical theatre school so they were all original compositions but a lot of them were quite ballady and stuff so I was like oh, okay and I I'm not great at accents um, but I decided to do a French accent which just turned into a stock foreign accent <laughs> um, but I said it was a Slovenian accent, which no one could really challenge. Cause <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're not the only person that's pulled that off on the yeah. comedy circuit. <laughs> you can do Slovakian as well, that's fine. Um, so yeah, I, 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 and then it got laughs. Um, and I distinctly remember that moment being a really key moment because it was something that I'd written that had got laughs. And I'd got laughs doing live performance and stuff. Where I'd done a lot of acting in youth theatres and things like that, and, you know, before drama school and then plays at college. 
but it had never been for anything that I'd written. It had just been for, you know, uh, like plays and, and stuff like that. So to do something that I'd written and to be getting laughs from it was such an incredible feeling. And I carried on doing that song in a kind of group of singers from college that went around Guildford. But when I came to do stand-up a couple of years after I'd graduated, um, I didn't do the songs for about a year, even though they're the thing probably that are the thing that I do best. Um, okay. And I think that was because I was just too scared of really putting my cards on the table. And I'd also heard that, like, um, I can't remember who said it to me. There was another stand-up at the time that said don't um don't just do the songs because if you just do comedy songs you'll do the song and then you won't know how to talk to the audience when the song ends and that was what was happening i did a few gigs where i did just do the songs but on the gay circuit um because i entered a competition in on a roundabout in tottenham hale um (laughs) there was a gay club called the lee paris variety bar and i entered a competition that i saw in the stage newspaper that was a talent show and you could do anything so this was between leaving drama school and starting stand-up i did this um and i entered it with i had a song about jerry hallowell's dog um from the point of view of the dog who was a new york jew i decided um (laughs) and um which you have to do the accent for that you it's not like the slovenian thing Uh, you have to get it right um but i it was about him not liking jerry and um and then I had, I tended to do songs about celebrities. Then I had another song about Jordan where I was singing her a lullaby and sort of saying, calm down, you know, you're a good person. But, <laughs> um, and then I had the song A Million Faces, which was the song from college. I just had three songs. And so I entered the competition at the Lee Paris Variety Bar and I ended up winning it. I think partly because the other acts just, um, I think all of them sort of changed the words to pop songs and things like that. So mm-hmm. I was only doing original songs and I had by no means had... Um, my performance sorted at all like i do the songs well enough but between them i just kind of put my head down and go thanks 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 then do the next song um and then i was supposed to get a thousand pounds worth of gigs on the gay circuit as a result of it and i got a manager in west norwood um as well um which weirdly is next to where i live now which is an area of south london um and then I ended up doing about £80 worth of gigs on the gay circuit. And then the management in West Nord around me said, I oh, don't really think it's working out. Um, okay. And that was because I just didn't have the confidence to go and perform at, at those venues. In, sure. And it was almost a bit like the lower end of the comedy circuit, the kinds of gigs I was doing. Like I'd get to a gig and there'd be no mic stand. So the mic would be gaffer taped to us. I remember this, the, gaff, this, the mic was gaffer taped to a stool the same height as the stool that I was sitting on. So I had to sort of like go at a 45 degree <laughs> angle to then try and hold my head on one side so they could at least see me. And um, it, looking back, it was actually great for me to be doing those gigs. It was a real baptism of fire. But I used to die horribly at them, really. There was a one where I had a good gig in Stratford where they were lovely, but generally it was quite it was quite hard so I stopped doing that and then I thought right I'm going to try the open mic stand-up circuit but I think then I thought I'm, I'm not going to do the songs for a year and I didn't do them for a year because I thought I really need to work out a bit who I am on the stage so thank you to everyone that came to this show uh, it was lovely to see so many of you there I think at the very beginning in a bit that didn't make the the edit of this uh, I asked uh, uh, who was a listener of the podcast and had the I would say the biggest percentage cheer I was quite thrown I was very touched so thank you if you're one of the people that made it down uh, remember of course Dave Gorman is my guest in two months time on the 7th of March uh, and Romesh Ranganathan will be my guest on the 4th of April so you can get tickets for both of those at SohoTheatre.com Uh, 
entering the special super secret and very guessable uh, podcast code FAF, F-A-F-F, at the checkout in their little enter a voucher code bit in order to get 25% off your tickets. Now, thank you to Izzy. I really, really enjoyed this. It was so nice to see her. She's such an easy presence. And she is, as as you've heard, you know, vomiting into a spider web. There's something, you know, there's uh, there's there's whimsy, and then there's actually going through with it and vomiting into a spider web. But um, I think she is just such a brilliant. Her comedy is such a brilliant package of of that kind of internal steel and stubbornness and that really open and warm and, and inventive imagination. So it just do find out more about her stuff. I had a, a buddy from America came to, to see the show as well, and he was very uh, excited. Like, he, he had never heard of Peep Show or Izzy Stand Up and properly came out of this conversation going, I've got, I've got to find out about this stuff, which is exactly uh, how the show should work. And I tell you what, I actually reaped the benefit recently of a thing I've been telling you to do. I put it into practice and it worked. You know, you know the, the one of the challenges of being a podcaster is recognizing that I'm not trying to tell the man in the street about the show. I'm trying to tell the person who already knows about podcasting about the show. And what I've been asking you to do in a very sneaky way uh, is that whenever you tell any of your friends about the show, or if you get chatting uh, to someone at a gig, or you're talking about comedy, what you need to do, because some people have that kind of, and I know that I'm not speaking to anyone listening to this, this isn't about you, but other people, other non-podcast people, you mention podcasts, and there's something about that word being very unwieldy, and sounding poddy and futuristic, and it's an odd sort of a word, and you'll have experienced this yourself. You'll say to someone, "Have you heard this podcast?" And they'll go, "Oh no, I don't. I don't. I don't do that. I don't do those things. They're sort of like late adopters." Um, so I've been saying to you in the past, the best thing to do with these people is to go give it here, take their smartphone from them, and subscribe to this show as an example of what a podcast is. I did this to my new friend Luke uh, in a pub recently, and I saw him on New Year, and he went, "Oh, I enjoyed that Tom Stade episode." How do I get another one and <laughs> have to fucking take it off him again and go, you press that really obvious button that says feed and uh, and, and what have you. So anyway, that is a, that's a really good start. So uh, it worked for me. I hope it'll work for you too. Other ways that you can support the show, uh, you know them. You know them. I don't, I don't know. Do you turn off at this bit? Do you roll your eyes and speak along with the, 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 the accidental text that I've learnt? I mean, there's just a couple of things you can do, and it's daft because someone might come to this show and not the others. So I sort of have to say them again, and I'm proud. I'm proud to be. I'm proud to be asking for your help um, because some of you, you know, I bloody love this. I had another email. Thank you, James Ellis. I had another email today from someone um, who has started out. They uh, they regard the show as having given them a nudge to start doing stand up. That's got to be the official list. I've written down the names of those. But the, the, since I started keeping a note of the names, there's only five people on the list. But in the back of my mind, there's the general list of four years worth of this show. I think we've got to be approaching 30 comedians. Fly, fly, my pretties. Suck up all the gigs and destroy the industry from within. Um, listen, the point I'm trying to make is that I'm proud to be asking you for your help with the show because I want more people to listen to it. Uh, I am very proud of it, and I think you are as well, and I'm glad that you are. I'm glad that you're all so excited about it. Um, You can send me money. You can donate to support the show if you think that it's good that this happens and you'd like to become an active part in it rather than a passive part, um, then you can absolutely go to comedianscomedian.com and you can donate any amount of money through any of the various systems that are on there. You can do a subscription payment or a one-off donation. I was thinking about 
like there, there's something about <laughs> you know what would be useful is if you could just click a box that played half a percent of your income that would do me nicely but i was talking to my uh, my longtime collaborator pete dobbing uh, about ways to try and get it into people's heads of like what of a way for you to decide what the show is worth to you and he came up with the excellent suggestion which is that i should be pitching for a bottle of wine whatever was the price of the last bottle of wine you drank that's like a good indicator i think of how much uh, a casual one-off donation might be. So if you're, you know, the wife of a former prime minister, say, then maybe your last bottle of wine costs 30 quid. I mean, this is where the system falls down because may- maybe you're a, a cheap drunk. Who knows? <laughs> I can't quite believe I said that. Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're a cheap date, is what I meant to say. Um, so uh, so maybe that's only some happy shopper Polish leapfrog meals. Who knows? Uh, maybe there are students out there who are tanning 30 quid a go on a bottle of Viognier or Chablis. Who knows? Um, donate to the show if you like it, if you want it to continue, if you want to support it and and show your pride in, in the show in a physical way, you can do that. But you can also tell people about it, share episodes to people's Facebook pages. You can go and leave a lovely five-star review on iTunes. I had a look at some of them over Christmas and I teared up twice. There's about 350 reviews on there, only three shitty ones. The rest of them are absolutely lovely. Which can I remember? The three shitty ones. <laughs> Screw you. Screw you, guy who said I'd taken my foot off the gas. I have not. There's someone on this. Someone, this is. You should absolutely never respond to criticism. But this particular guy on one of the iTunes reviews said that this guy, he said something on the lines of this show used to be good, but he's lost it. And this is one out of like 350. He said he's he, the show's gone to bollocks because um, his questions aren't any good anymore. Geez, asking people what they'd have on their comedy gravestone. Come off it. Now, look. I'm not an idiot. I'm asking that question because what it does is it forces my guest to suddenly think of a joke because they want to, because it gives a kind of a sense of jeopardy. It's a fucking good question, mate. Don't respond to criticism. Don't respond to criticism. Um, I hope that this gentleman never listens to this because as long as he doesn't listen to this, then I won't have responded to criticism. How's that? Ha! I think that's everything I need to tell you. Of course it isn't. The tour, the tour. We'll go back to Izzy in two seconds, I promise. Um, the uh, the tour is coming up. And if you would like to help, if you're one of the people who lives in Birmingham, Nottingham, Kingston, Crawley, Manchester, Bristol, Southend, Canterbury, Aldershot, Hemel Hempstead, Milton Keynes, Bath, Norwich, Leicester, Corby, Wolverhampton, Soho, Sutton. And I always want to put on the end of this, Darleydale, Misham and now Droitwich. But it's not going to be in any of those three places. They're off the DFS advert I listened to as a child. Um... If you live in any of the aforementioned places apart from the last three and you would like to help me uh, advertise the show, because this is, I mean, I know I love that you and I have a relationship because you listen to this show, but I am very small beer in comedian terms, in man in the street terms, uh, in actually someone stopping and seeing my poster and going, what's that? Maybe I'll come and see it. It's tough. It's tough to sell at all when you've got bags of telly behind you. And I, as we know, have, how should we put it? Less than perhaps I might have. So um, I really need your help. And so many of you have already sent in uh, emails. I'm just going to do another little another little call to arms. Chuck us an email, info at comedianscomedian.com, with the subject line Cavalry. If you're in or near any of those places, you think you fancy coming to see the show, and uh, if you think you would be able to make use of some posters, send me your address. 
I'll send you some posters and you can put them up in your place of work and convince your pals to come and see the show with you. Then we all have a great time. Then after the final track is played on those solo tour shows, you hang around. We have a little five minute Q&A before we get kicked out of the venue and uh, you get to ask me all those secret burning questions you want to ask about the podcast, how I make it and the secret nickname that I've been calling my uh, yet to be born son. So <laughs> that's a little ask me anything available after those shows. And um, all of the details, of course, are at comedianscomedian.com. Uh, you can click on a little link there. You can send me money, buy a T-shirt, come and see the show. Advertising, advertising, advertising. At least I'm not advertising. Insert name of product here. So at least at least it's all in-house. Now back to Izzy. Uh, she was great. You've been great. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to Izzy Sutton. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> When you started doing stand-up without the songs, what was your... Did you Had you written stuff? Had you prepared stuff? Um, no, so I put the first gig in. Um, so it was a very weird feeling because I kind of had a set by that point that I'd been doing on the gay circuit that was probably about 15 to 20 minutes long, like the Jerry Halliwell Dog song, the Jordan song, the Million Faces, and then I think um, another couple of songs. I actually wrote a song called Pussy Palace um, because... I was going to do these gay gigs and I was straight and I felt like a fraud because I'd happened to enter that competition and also lesbians sometimes tried to hit on me afterwards, which I didn't mind at all, but I was like, shit, are they going to... So I wrote this song called Pussy Palace, which had um, a middle eight um, where Dusty Springfield came to me in a dream and told me like how to be with a woman and stuff. Um, <laughs> and even Pussy Palace didn't keep me the management in West North. Um, so... <laughs> So I had so I had probably like 20 minutes um, and uh, it was a very weird feeling to be doing this first stand-up gig. So I booked um, a five-minute slot in Greenwich at a pub. I think it was called the Horse and Plough or something like that, quite near Cotty Sark Station. Um, and I hadn't written any material at all, but it was for like three months away. Because can you remember at that time? Like now there are a lot more people doing comedy, mm. but I think we started around the same time, maybe didn't we, 2002, 2003. There mm. were like... Um, not that many people doing it really, and I didn't use the internet then sure. either. I it was time out. It was ringing numbers. Yeah, in time I used to out, ring all the numbers in time out. I used to have an A4 folder with an alphabet thing in it, the cardboard, um, the A4 cardboard things with all the letters of the alphabet, and I used to have all the promoters in alphabetical order, and I'd put you know, rang them, didn't ring back and the date and then a week later I rang them, didn't ring back, and then I'd sort of try three times, I think, before leaving it for like three months and trying again. So um I put, I put that gig in, probably three months to go before the gig. Um, and then I remember it was my cousin's wedding and I didn't go to uh, the evening bit because I was so scared about, I think it was about a week before, I just went back to the hotel room and, and wrote some stuff. Okay. And, yeah. Okay, so you, sorry, you, you 
wrote the stuff before doing the gig. So I did write the stuff before you, doing you, the gig, but when I put it, the gig in, yeah. I didn't have anything. No, that, that's yeah. a, that, that is one of the few pieces of advice I try to give people if they ask for advice, is book something, yeah. and then it'll make you write something. Absolutely. If you don't have a deadline, it's really hard, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So when you were writing, did you were you writing in a similar voice? to the? You were already presumably developing a voice through the songs. Yes, I was. But interestingly, with the songs, a lot of them were in another character. So the Jerry Halliwell's Dog song was as this New York Jew. The Jordan song was kind of as me, but in a softer voice, like a lullaby voice. I hadn't yet really mastered being myself in the songs. But you're right in saying I was definitely further down the line with the songs mm. than I was. I had never spoken as myself on stage, whereas at least I'd done, you know, I'd sung on stage and I'd done my stuff. So it was it was really hard writing that material. I had no sense of who I was. I had no sense of what I wanted to say. I just knew that I really was so desperate to make them laugh um, and that I would go to virtually any lengths to do it. I sort of can't not ask what kind of lengths you're talking about. Oh, well, I mean, I don't mean like anything dodgy, but like... I've got scoliosis, curvature of the spine, which means just that my back's a little bit wonky. A lot of people have got it, and I've got it very mildly. But if I if I make my back flat, um, one side of my ribs is about a centimetre higher than the other side because with scoliosis, your rib cage slightly rotates. So somehow, I don't know how, I think it might have been because I had two tequilas before going on, I ended up telling the audience that. I say audience, there were probably about four people there. But... I ended up talking about scoliosis and they were like, huh? And then I, and then I showed them that. Um, and although that doesn't sound like a big length to go to, it's not like, you know, stripping off or anything. It felt very weird to be sharing a piece of medical um, and you, and fact in an attempt to, you know... Because you'd found yourself in that position of just following any, anything might work. Kind of, yeah. I think I tried all the material that I'd written and it hadn't worked that well. Um Although it had worked well enough to make me go back, I think that often happens with the first gig. It goes slightly better than you think it's going to, and then it's the next ones that are hard. But I think it had worked well enough, but I'd I'd got to the end more quickly than I thought, and I'd done about three minutes, and I was supposed to do five, so I didn't know what to do then. Um, I showed them my scoliosis, which didn't get much. Um, (laughs) And then... I remember one of them worked in advertising. I started taking the piss out of him in a way that I thought Bill Hicks might, but didn't really have anywhere to go. And then I was like, bye. Um, And I met some builders downstairs. Before I went on, that was why I'd had the tequila. And they were like, I don't know why I was chatting to them at the bar. And they were like, I was like, I'm about to do my first stand-up gig. And then they made me drink a tequila. They were like, I can't believe you're about to do that. Um, Yeah. So uh, was there, uh, in the finding of your voice, and you're someone who, and for people less familiar with this idea i think a lot of comedians we talk about finding our voice find and it often means i think finding a way to be on stage as relaxed and comfortable and happy and funny as you are with your friends i think often that's what it means not always yeah um as someone for whom like your voice is so distinctive like it's very difficult to imagine any of your material really being delivered by anyone else i think that's a real strength of yours as a comedian was there a particular breakthrough moment where you had a gig that you thought actually i've got a sense of of that's who i am um i don't know if there was actually i think just slowly slowly i started to talk about things that i wanted to talk about there probably were moments in gigs where i did a bit that i had thought of that I wasn't sure about and that got the biggest laugh and then I ploughed that furrow and realised that that was me being more true to who I was but I can't remember there being like a whole set where I was like wow this is who I am it was just 
working really hard getting my head down for years gigging like five or six nights a week and um just slowly very slowly but surely like frustratingly slowly because i think we're all quite impatient to get to that point where we're like doing an hour i i got i got better at being who i was and i there was definitely um a, a period of time where i thought ah, this is how it should be. I did um, a tour called Edinburgh and Beyond after Edinburgh 2008, I think, um, with Glenn Wool and Dan Atkinson and Joe Wilkinson. And um, Glenn closed it every night. And I remember once we'd we'd all done a gig um, in a kind of suburb of London. It hadn't gone that well for any of us. It was quite a small audience. And it was one of those gigs where at some art centres it feels quite clinical and it's not their fault. It's just that in a room like we're in now, it feels right for comedy it's got a low ceiling and um the lighting's good and it feels like it's got a bit of character it feels like it isn't new and some art centers have a very clinical new almost kind of um disinfectanty feeling and it was a bit like that mm. and we came off and um i said to glenn like do you do you ever get nervous and he said i just think about whether the gig's gonna, the gig's gonna be worth me doing or not and i thought what a great way to think that's because it doesn't mean that you don't want to go on necessarily it doesn't mean that you think that there's anything wrong with the audience it just puts you your mind in a place where you're like i'm gonna have fun i'm not gonna yes. be thinking like oh what are they gonna think of me and then once you relax and have fun it makes it makes the gig better anyway so that was a really that was a really good tour for me to do when um, when you said earlier that you're you started talking about the things you wanted to talk about yeah can you give us an example of some of uh, what some of those things were yeah so it wasn't like subjects that i wanted to be talking about so it wasn't like i'd always really wanted to talk about like right-wing politics and finally i found the confidence <laughs> um, it, it's more that um i i think what i thought was that um i think it's almost a bit misleading for me to say i found the things i want to talk about because it what um you know i think i thought that comics had to talk about big stuff and early on i had stuff about bae systems and um i tried to do a bit of political stuff and i had quite a bad bit about um putting heroin addicted page three girls into the big brother house and and stuff sort of trying to be satirical and like hey what if you you know if these two things jigsawed together what would happen whereas i think when i when i'm sorry sorry that that was out of a sense of feeling like that's what a comedian should be absolutely that was i thought that's what a comedian does they they talk about big stuff they try and talk about politics and i didn't um at that point have the confidence to go oh, I could just read a letter that my mum wrote me the other day that's quite funny. Because I thought that was almost too small and perhaps too provincial to do on stage. And it was at the point that I started talking about Matlock more and about stuff to do with me and, like, um, me growing up. And my mum, a lot of stuff about my mum. Like, my mum writes me these quite funny letters from home about very petty things that go on in Matlock. And once I started reading those out and um, I realised that actually it was better than me talking about BAE systems... um, (laughs) I think that everyone has a thing that's right for them to do. And I think some comics are really good at going, Jeremy Corbyn is this and this and this, and I am certainly not that comic. Um, and I think it's so great when you realise that. It's a similar thing to that thing of having a blank page. When you think, oh, I shouldn't be doing that, it narrows the things that you should be doing. And then you're like, oh, how about this? 
Um, yes. Yeah. There's something I, I uh, when I think of uh, your character and the, the similarities and the differences between you and who you are on stage, um, I noticed there was an interview I read with you uh, in The Guardian, I think, possibly somewhere else, um, where you're talking about, uh, it's a fact of your childhood when you're saying, oh, when I was, however old it was, 13 or 14, I used to take bogeys and put them behind my bed and it made this mountain of bogeys. And I remember reading that and thinking there are very few people who would be comfortable opening themselves up to kind of, not exactly ridicule, but do you know what I mean? That's quite even, like, it's not a huge revelation about yourself, but it's something I'm like, oh, I don't want people to know about the embarrassing shit I did when I was a kid. But you, you seem very open to that. Yeah, maybe I, yeah, I don't, I sort of know that that is a bit of a disgusting thing to do, but I, I guess... I don't know. I was quite proud of the fact that I did it every day. Because <laughs> <laughs> I never hoovered, beh- I never hoovered behind the bed or under the bed for years, and it, it was massive. But I, sort of, <laughs> I just don't. Um, I don't really. I genuinely don't care about people knowing about that. It's quite interesting because now I've had a baby. Um, I've started thinking about whether to talk about the birth or not in certain gigs and whether to talk about um i've got to write um a book um, in the next few years and i was thinking about whether to write about being a mum and all that and whether that's an interesting thing to read and you know whether i can think of enough stuff to say that isn't just me kind of essentially slipping over on placenta if you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. i don't want it just to be like and then i fucked up again um so I thought about how much detail to go into about the birth, and that's just about the only time that something's kicked in in my head going, do you really want people to know this? And it's perhaps a thing that should have kicked in with a bogey mountain, but I've got a much (laughs) lower threshold. (laughs) I don't think the bogey mountain is that disgusting. I used to... weird thing, when I used to meet people, I almost used to tell them stuff like that as a test. And if they found it disgusting, I was like... I don't want to be your friend. Like, seriously, I'd just be like, oh, fuck you. If you can't deal with that, you're not going to be any fun. And it used to be the, the same with guys. Like, I'd tell them something quite grim. I remember someone trying to set me up with someone and me telling him that I'd just had food poisoning and, like, you know, I can't remember, I think thrown up in the bath and kind of laying in it and stuff. And he was like, uh, and I was like, great, I know already that you're not right for me. <laughs> we don't have to go on a date. So there's almost a bit of a stubborn... Thing there, I think that that dynamic between the stubbornness and the kind of more, yeah. I mentioned the word whimsical earlier on. I don't know how you feel about that word. I think you're someone for whom that label could be applied, or or it occurred to me to ask you how you felt about the word quirky because it seems to be something that crops up a lot when people describe you. Yeah, I don't know about the word quirky because I feel like it isn't used with blokes, and that interests me and kind of makes me go, why is that? Like. I don't think you'd quite as readily use it with a bloke. I don't, I don't know why, what the answer is to why that, that sure. is. But I don't know. How would you describe Tim Key or Joe Wilkinson? I guess you might say oddball or yes. eccentric. Yeah, or you're right. You so wouldn't really I'd say quite like I'd like oddball or eccentric more than quirky or whimsical. Whimsical feels a bit to me like um, deliberately um, obtuse. And I don't feel like that's something I am. I think I just happen to have done stuff that um is perhaps a bit mental that i remember in detail so to me it isn't weird at all like the fact that not everyone had a bogey mountain is to my advantage because (laughs) it becomes a story that people remember but at the same time i don't ever tell it going 
this will be weird. It's just, it just happens that I, I think everyone in their lives and in their childhoods has got stuff like that. And in their teenage years, it's just how you frame it or how much detail you go into. So yeah, I'm not sure. I don't really like the word whimsical. um, And I don't really care for the word quirky, but I think whimsical, I always feel a bit like, Um, well I I think it connotes a sort of like you said a a deliberateness that maybe seems a bit fraudulent like it feels quite like a little girl like um, whimsical feels a bit I don't know like I'd sort of talk about badgers for a whole hour what if badgers wore clothes or whatever (laughs) so not what I do I talk about fucking bogey mountains (laughs) Um, but there is I I think what what prevents you what stops you from being whimsical is the fact that there is that kind of steely there's a sort of stubbornness and a willingness to talk about I mean one of the one of the kind of tropes of your work I suppose is uh, relationships and I think you I think you've said yourself it's about relationships and the failure of relationships so you get to talk and sing about sort of bittersweet or potentially painful uh, topics but within the the clothes or within the character of of other people yeah and that's the thing that I think I probably do best and that um it took a bit of a leap for me to discover but then I was like oh yeah that's what I really like doing I like singing as myself once I realized I could essentially duet as myself it was good because then I I could do two different voices and then I'm you know once I started writing hours that were a long story which involved me and a couple of other characters and but I could play all of them doing different voices it opened up a lot of stuff for me because I was like I see now how I can create a show that is hopefully funny and moving and that I can do all this different stuff with because I'm not just going and then the man did this and then the woman did that I can sort of act it out as if it was a one-person play but with bits of stand-up in it um and, and I'm so interested in I've always been so interested in the detail of, of romantic relationships and, and I suppose familial relationships as well in the vulnerabilities within them and why people stay together when they're not quite right for each other or um the the pain that people will will go through to perhaps stay with someone who their family doesn't like or i'm just so fascinated by that um and i i really love exploring that what do you think what do you think is behind that fascination is it that you've kind of gone oh there's territory here i can have this or is it that it that it kind of resonates with you on some personal level um i don't feel like i definitely didn't feel like um an objective move where I thought this hasn't been done because it you know it has um been done fantastically by many people it wasn't a cynical kind of you know um thought out move I don't know why I'm so drawn to it I think it's like the gift that keeps on giving really because like you I suppose you think you know in 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 real life you think you know someone and they always surprise you when you're in a relationship with them um I think also how people are in relationships and what their other half's like says so much about them that perhaps they can't see. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really know why I find it so fascinating, but I find it most natural to write about out of anything. Um, and I feel very free when I sort of pretend to be other characters and um, for some reason i find playing blokes easier than playing women um i don't know why that is i i love it when i was in i was in like a tea shop the other day and there was an old northern guy asking for a cake but he couldn't say the name of the cake it was almost too fancy for his lips um 
and it was called like lemon poppy it was only i think it was in like starbucks i think it was lemon co- poppy muffin or cafe near or something but it was like oh, the lemon thing but she had to say which because there was like a lemon cheesecake and <laughs> and he just pointed in the vague direction of it but he wouldn't say and he could see the lettering and she couldn't but he couldn't make himself say it and it almost broke my heart because I thought, why is that such a sort of universe? Anyone would understand that. I'm sure old Italian men are like that too. Maybe they're not. And if they aren't, why? You know, I really want to write about it. Like that thing that it was almost too... It, he didn't want to be seen to be ordering anything kind of other than a cup of tea, but he really wanted the cake and he was torn <laughs> between. So um, I love stuff like that. I, yeah. <laughs> There's something, again, very sort of uh, characteristic of your work is those specific things that you mentioned. Like there's a, a line in um, in Pearl and Dave where uh, Pearl, which I, I don't know if it's still available anywhere. Yeah, it is on iTunes. It's yeah, on iTunes. Okay. Yeah. Um, but there's, so it's a love story between these two people. And at one point, Pearl says in this very breathy voice, it's this kind of burgeoning romance between two people with, who've already got partners. And, uh, and she says... It's, what's the line? It's something like, um, I've eaten only Twixes today and I haven't been to Bridge for a week. And the, the, the specific nature of that, I should apologise for murdering that line, but it, it really made me laugh and go, ouch, you know. Um, but is, to what extent are, are little sketches and little details like that, to what extent are they uh, kind of observed and to what extent are they invented? Um, I think I like... Um, I like noticing the essence of stuff like that in other people's relationships and kind of magpieing it away. And then I think I tend to write in the detail myself. So I think it's more likely that if I ever wrote a character of the man who couldn't order cake, I'd probably make it into a much more extended thing and perhaps not in any way make it similar to the original. But it's like I get the drop of it um, from there and then that's the kind of... the nucleus of of how it ends up okay yeah so the so the individual things like i've eaten only twixes say yeah that's is that you've taken the idea of someone i don't know quite how to ask it but you know what i mean that's not based on someone you know who didn't you know who no. only ate twixes no but it, it's the idea that like, like you say the nucleus of it it's more like the reason that she's saying she's only in Twix and she hasn't been to Bridge for a week and um, in that song it's because they, they're Skyping each other the whole time and they're like lovesick, they can only think about each other and she's got this horrible husband. Um, it's, it, it comes out of her, her desperation to show him how much she cares about him and when I'm writing um, a song and I really get into it, it just sort of like comes out um, and I don't really think that much about the words um, and until after i always know that i'm 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 onto the right thing if it just sort of comes out almost whole and um like the words and melody together i always know it's a bit it's gonna it's maybe not sitting quite right if i have to think too much about okay like the melody and what so ideally i get the characters and then i sort of start just playing the guitar and then i might play for about an hour without kind of going anywhere and then suddenly i kind of three or four the skeleton of a three three or four minute song comes out rather okay. than writing it in chunks okay or getting and the chorus first and then working back i don't tend and to do you're that. you're writing the the lyrics of the song by improvising them and kind of new yeah so once i've got the character's voice right then um if it if if it feels right um then it can kind of fuel itself yeah 
Okay. I, I don't want to... We're already running short on time because uh, we've uh, got involved. But um, let's talk about Peep Show. And let's talk about um, Dobby. You entered the, the show in Series 5. Was, it, was that difficult to enter an existing thing? Did you have to kind of... It's a very uniquely styled show. Um, it was easier than it was easy in a way because you know it was definitely going to get shown and sometimes you do a pilot and you think oh will it ever go to series and if it does then we might not find out for a year and the good thing was it was already up and running and a great show so I was like okay I know that I'm definitely going to be on telly (laughs) um uh I was quite nervous because I didn't really know Rob or David and I felt um quite intimidated going into a show that big and um very excited at the same time but I didn't really... I remember, for, I think the first week or two, I just didn't speak to anyone at all. Like, between scenes, I just went and stood and did a crossword. And I was like, the, I felt like the new girl at school. Not because they weren't nice to me, they were. But I just felt a bit like I had with Izzy Sutty and the Muppets and stuff, where I was, like, doing the scenes and then just going and putting my head down. And thankfully, didn't throw up into any spider's webs. <laughs> but um, I felt kind of like I've just got to do my job and I've got to kind of suss out what I do in between this... And then after a couple of weeks, I was like, oh, "Okay, it seems to be going all right." And um, and then, yeah, it was. And did you get a sense at the time of how important that character might be for you? The fact that you'd play the character in several series. No, and... no, I didn't know it would ever go past. I've never known it would be in the next series, as it were. So you know, when we finished series five, I hoped that I would be back, but I didn't know. And then um, I was very pleased and kind of a bit overwhelmed when people liked it and because I hadn't really done very much telly before that I had done little bits but only like one episode of things and stuff so it was quite a big jump it felt like quite a big jump were there moments where you felt you got to grips with the character because obviously the Sam and Jesse write the show and they give it to you and you turn it into the character so were there any moments where you felt kind of enough ownership over Dobby that that you kind of felt is this quite right in the script does this sit with my interpretation of it um no not really it was like we got the scripts and we did it uh, i thought the writing was always excellent and i never felt i never felt that that's the truth i'd say if i did i would have said it to them because they're so incredibly open and they always said like do you feel like and i was always like yeah like what yeah i just um the way that that show's written you don't have to do very much like with something like toast say a lot of it's in in performance and it's quite cartoony and it's so much a part of what the show is whereas with peep show it always felt quite naturalistic and as long as the casting was right and you said the lines and didn't actually try to do loads and loads with them it probably sat better than if you yeah than if you tried to do a lot okay um at least i felt like that i think perhaps like maybe matt king would have felt with superhands that he kind of did a perhaps no no i don't think he i think matt king's like pretty similar to supans in real life (laughs) (laughs) something i like to ask people on the show is to review themselves so if we do it from the point of view of your stand-up and i know you you were saying before you've got uh, a stand-up tour coming up that's like the book tour for a book you're releasing later this month so tell us tell us a bit about the book and and what you're planning for that tour to be and then we'll do the review question okay (laughs) uh books um like about my late 20s and early 30s and it's called the actual one and uh it's kind of a memoir of that period of my life where I was single and all my mates suddenly seemed to be settling down and I was really pissed off with them um 
for doing so unreasonably but that is how I felt um and then my mate said oh don't worry when you think you've met the one because I just split up with a guy who I thought was the one the next guy you meet is the actual one and I was like okay um so that's kind of the spine of the story okay um and uh the tour which I'm sort of like finalizing now will be a mixture of songs and stand-up and readings from the book but I found that when I preview I previewed it a couple of times when I actually start reading if I go and now for the bit where I made a papier-mâché penguin to try and save my relationship, which is a bit near the beginning, I, if, if I then go and look down and start reading it, the energy drops in the room. So it's quite interesting. I think with some book tours, if you're like Jonathan Franzen, you'd, people would be there to see you read and that it wouldn't happen like that. But because I chat to them before the, the readings and after and do the songs... I think I'm going to need to lift it off the page more. So I think I need to learn the key bullet points and some nice lines from each story and then have the book open, but actually just tell it. Because at the end of the last preview, I was like, did you feel like when I was reading it, was it when they were like, yeah, it was better when you just told them. And I was like, oh, fuck. I'm going to have to like learn the book. The book that you've written. <laughs> <laughs> could, you, could you tell the story from memory without looking at the book yeah, and, it, did, and it not be the words did, of the book? I naturally did that a couple of times and it was fine. And I found bits in it that weren't in the book and I was like, shit, there's no time to put these in. <laughs> um, so my editor's going to be really pleased at the end of the tour. And I'm like, um, can't we make all these changes? Um, but... Yeah, I think that's the best thing to do. I need to just familiarise, not learn, familiarise yes. myself with it. And that's yeah. and this, so there's going to be elements of stand-up in that as well? Yeah, that I guess. That aren't like, in the book? Uh, yeah, I guess. I'm still doing, like, I did an hour and a quarter in the last preview, and it's got to be, like, 55 minutes, so I need to look at what to... Yeah, there are. They're going to be, I'm going to read from my GCSE history coursework, and I'm going to do... I'm going to do a section that couldn't go into the book because it was deemed too disgusting, um... And probably not in Leamington Spa because it's quite posh. You're from Leamington Spa. I am from Leamington Spa. Yeah. I can't imagine the stories about my friend drinking his girlfriend's sick um, going down that well in Leamington they'll Spa. They'll love that. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do Just it. Just call for you. them Lem and they'll roll over. <laughs> so, uh, so with that in mind, then, and you were saying before, this is a show that your first tour show that you haven't already done at Edinburgh. Yes, that's so quite that is a scary weird. prospect. And also, it, I don't really know what the show is yet because I need to sort of cut it down from an hour and a quarter so um it well i know it will be a mixture of like chatting and doing readings and stuff i mean it's not going to be stand up in the sense of like walking up and down the stage like michael mcintyre it's going to be me sitting at a stool and so when i say stand up it's going to be me kind of talking around the book and but i want to keep it quite loose and i'm sitting down for the first time so i never sit down normally on stage apart from when i did the gay scene and used to do you know the, the mics were gaffer taped to the stalls and all that i think that was part of the thing that made me stand up um because when you stand up you, you, I, I just kind of feel so much more like okay i'm standing here i'm, I'm but i am going to sit on a stool i, I was going to say people who haven't done stand-up comedy and tried doing it sitting on a stool will probably not realize quite what a deal it's that is so, it's really different <laughs> i really experienced that this year why. Yeah. i did the show that i did at edinburgh um just gone uh, I, there was a bench just accidentally at the back of the stage. It was a free fringe venue. And I just really got into every so often sitting on the bench and it completely changed the rhythm and the mood and, and you know, I was able to leap up from it and I was like, Jesus, I've got a prop for yeah, the first yeah, time yeah. in 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I feel I should ask you more questions about stools, but I don't think this was necessarily the time. Um, no. So with that in mind and looking back at the whole of your, your stand-up practice... Uh, how would you, if you were to review yourself honestly from the position of an outsider? Like generally? Yeah. 
I'd say um, uh, feels honest. God, I think it feels like a chat with some. Feels like a chat with a friend. Sometimes, perhaps, lacking punchlines. But you still like that friend and want to be in the pub with them. Okay. Yeah, I'd say that. But sometimes I think my weakness is that sometimes I don't perhaps end that strongly. There isn't like a didum. Sometimes I stumble across it or another comic goes, hey, do that at the end. And I go, I fucking love you. Thank yeah. you. Um, and, uh, but I think generally that's my main weakness is that I slightly coast on turns of phrase and, um, and finger picking. A little bit. Okay. Yeah. And and is that is that something is that but criticism? Please come and see my book show. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that criticism something that has that you've picked up by osmosis because you've you've read it in reviews or you've heard it in reviews? I think it's or both. is it yeah I, or is it something that's come from me? I think sure. it's both. So I don't really read reviews as much anymore. Um, with Edinburgh, if I do Edinburgh, I don't read any reviews at all when I'm up there, and I memorise where my posters are on the first day, and then don't look at the posters from that day on, so I can't see Great any tip. quotes or anything, which sounds fucking mental if you're not a stand-up but um it's the only way i can get through it just to go that's the show that's what i'm doing just do it every day the same then drink and then you'll be back in england in three weeks um so um then what i do in september normally is i like sit down with a cup of tea and read all the reviews in one afternoon and then have a very quiet think um and then i tend not to be writing and i'm saying this as if i do edinburgh every year i actually haven't done it since 2011 but such is my mindset that i still think in academic years because of edinburgh but anyway i i tended i guess not to write very much in september because i'd just done a show so then i think that it is useful sometimes to read reviews i think if they're from a, a newspaper especially that you respect i think sometimes it's not very useful at all so i think you have to make the decision yourself as to whether at that time you feel i don't think there's an absolute rule for me like i sure. can imagine that perhaps i won't read any reviews of the book because i'm proud of it and also with the book it's a tangible thing like it's done it's not it's not a, a change so, yeah you can't change yeah, it that exactly. would be the point yeah. um so um i i think it is what it is um i know some comics don't re- read reviews at all i think it has been useful for me in in some ways to read them and not useful in others so um i'd like to be one of those people who doesn't read any um, and I'm very good at not Googling myself, which is perhaps why I haven't read, like, you know, very much of anything about Dobby. I just sort of do it. I would go, hate to be someone who has made you walk, walk off. Oh, no, don't worry. I mean, it's, no, it's, it, and it's done now, isn't it? But I mean, you just do your best at the time, don't you? And then, like, like I, I couldn't ever be one of those people who kind of gets a bottle of whiskey and sits down and go, right, I'm going to think, see what the internet thinks of me. God, um, no. No. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we must wrap up. But if there is, uh, uh, if anyone has a burning issue, we probably have time for one question. That's a great question. Thank you. I'll yeah, just repeat really that for question. the recording. Yeah, yeah. Uh, regarding Izzy Sutty and the Muppets or any of your band projects, would you change things? Would you rather have been a rock star? Did you want to be a rock star? Now I wouldn't, because I really like doing lots of different stuff. And I think if I'd ended up just doing music, you're a bit at the mercy of kind of music fashion but i think at the time the internet didn't exist and i think i would probably have been filming sketches and putting them online if i could have been but it was like the best thing i could do was to join a band um because it got me stage time and in and i was able to write stuff 
So, yeah, I think the answer is that I'd, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, as a very final question then, because we were about, we, in fact, we're running over by 20 seconds. As a last question, <laughs> what one piece of advice would you give to a newer act, if any happens to be in the room or listening? Um, just to gig as much as possible. I think the only way that you find out, I guess everyone says that, do they? That is quite common. Yeah, yeah. you've got... You've give us a different one. Um, okay, okay. Um, don't worry if it feels like you're not getting anywhere and don't worry if you don't get through any new act competitions i didn't get through the first round of laughing horse or uh amused moose or so you think you're funny i did get through amused moose but not so you think you're funny which is a big competition i was so gutted at the time and now it's just it's just really just treat it as another gig which is hard at the time because you feel that you're very much up against your peers but um that would be my advice just don't worry about about that stuff Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Izzy Sutty. Thank you. So that was Izzy. I I really enjoyed it and I can't thank her enough for coming on the show and I can't thank you enough if you came to it and I can't thank you enough for listening to it either for the first time or again. Thank you very much for all your support. Uh, Subject line cavalry if you would like to, uh, to help me out. Uh, with some tour posters or learn more about the show uh, that is all about what's in the show I've got such a good joke about snapping someone's neck and there is a show here's a game you can play when you come and see my tour show can you guess which one joke in the show was uh, based on an observation basically the joke was written by my uh, my fiance my lovely lady she's very very funny Josh Widdicombe came to see the show in preview. He's a pal. Clang. <laughs> is Josh, is Josh, I suppose he is now. Josh is now famous enough that I have to say clang if I drop his name. Um, Josh came to see the show and gave me some very lovely feedback on it. And uh, I said, can you... I texted him. I said, can you guess which joke was Sarsky's? And he texted back immediately with the correct answer. So much so that I was quite hurt. I was like, oh, God, is it is that obvious? Because it's, it's such a good joke. And... Uh, and I said, really, you nailed it. And he said, McIntyre levels of observation. And Josh reveres uh, McIntyre is a huge fan of his comedy. So I'm very, very proud to be marrying brackets eventually. Um, someone who is capable of those skills. So come and see the tour show. It's called An Hour. And uh, if you can guess afterwards which joke was uh, written or inspired, like 90% inspired. I, I put a punchline on the end of it, but the observation is all hers. If you can guess which joke it is, then I will give you 50p after the show. Not a guarantee, but I'll try. If I think, if I believe that you've genuinely uh, accurately surmised it, then uh, I will give you 50p. Can't say fairer than that. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you very soon. Mm-hmm.